The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. They believe that what we're doing is trying to constrain China, that we're, you know, trying to keep them down, that we're doing this to sort of for economic reasons. And and we've been really clear on that trip and 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 elsewhere um, that that's that's not the case. This isn't about economics. It's about it's about national security. We, we want American business to be able to do business with with Chinese companies as long as they don't impact our national security. And then when 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 we have concerns that it does impact our national security, that's non-negotiable for us. I'm Scott R. Anderson, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for November 17th, 2023. The United States has long set restrictions on the export of certain sensitive goods and technologies, particularly to strategic rivals. But over the past several years, we have seen first the Trump and now the Biden administrations use the legal authorities behind these export controls in new and innovative ways, for purposes ranging from limiting China's access to key emerging technologies to stymieing Russia's military effectiveness in Ukraine. The only problem is, once you impose these new types of restrictions, you then have to enforce them. And that's not always an easy task. To learn more about how the Biden administration is taking on this challenge, Lawfare contributing editor Brandon Van Grack and I sat down with Matthew Axelrod, Assistant Secretary of Export Enforcement at the U.S. Department of Commerce's Bureau of Industry and Security. We discussed how export control enforcement works, the sorts of coordination it requires with industry and foreign countries, friendly and unfriendly and what new enforcement strategies the United States is pursuing as the use of export controls changes. This is the latest episode of The Regulators, a special series Lawfare is co-producing with the law firm Morrison & Forrester, where Brandon is a partner. Each episode, Brandon and I sit down with some of the senior U.S. policymakers responsible for crafting and implementing the cutting-edge policies that are defining our new era of economic statecraft. It's The Lawfare Podcast for November 17th. Assistant Secretary Matt Axelrod on enforcing export controls. So Matt, you came into this role at BIS, at the Commerce Department, with a wealth of experience in national security, in law, from a lot of different perspectives. Just to, to help bring our listeners up to speed, tell us a little bit about your professional background, your prior experience with export controls and related issues, and how that's really channeled you into this position and informed how you approach the role. Sure, Scott, and thanks for having me. Yeah, so for the last 20 years, I've spent 15 of them in government and then five in the private sector. And before coming to commerce, the overwhelming majority of my time in government was spent at the Department of Justice, where I was a federal prosecutor in Miami doing a variety of cases. It's Miami, so of course I did drug cases, but I also did national security cases. Um, And then a number of years at DOJ headquarters in Washington, Maine Justice, uh, overseeing criminal enforcement and eventually national security enforcement work of the department as well. And then when I was out of government, I spent uh, four years at an international law firm doing investigations and white-collar defense work. I want to talk, uh, maybe talk a little bit about not just the role of BIS, but the importance of enforcement in your background. I, I often say, or had previously said before, obviously I'm sitting across the table from you, uh, that sanctions was traditionally the tip of the national security and foreign policy spear, because I don't think there's a geopolitical crisis where you don't see at least sanctions. It seems that has at least evolved, and if not a dual-tipped spear, maybe some sharp barbs on on that spear with respect to export controls. And I'm wondering if you can sort of talk about not just how you have seen that over the past year or two, but the importance of enforcement there. 
Sure, I'll go. I'll go with a dual-tipped spear. I don't, I don't want to just be a barb on someone else's spear. Um, yeah. So, look, I I think we're at a bit of an inflection point when it comes to the overall national security threat picture. Um, as I'm sure you guys know, every every year the Office of the Director of National Intelligence puts out an annual threat assessment, cataloging the greatest national security threats facing our country. And they started doing this in 2006. And if you go back and look at that 06 report, not surprisingly, the report leads with a discussion of the threat from non-state actors like al-Qaeda, the threat of terrorism. China doesn't appear in that report until page 20. Russia is on page 16. No, compare that to this year's report, and the you know the difference is really stark. Um, This year's report leads with the threat from state actors: China, Russia, Iran, North Korea. And why is that relevant to export controls? Because part of the dimension of that threat that we face from nation-state actors is the desire of those actors to modernize their military capability by acquiring U.S advanced technology. Um, and they want to do that so that they can ultimately shift the balance of power in the world. And so all of a sudden, our mission, which is protecting that U.S. technology from ending up in the wrong hands overseas, I think has sort of moved up the depth chart of our national security priorities in an important way. And at the same time, the advances in the power of that technology um, is happening. So I think for, you know, for a bunch of both geopolitical reasons and sort of advances in technology reasons, all of a sudden export controls are, you know, sort of front and center in the national security world. And maybe just because uh, we're going to be throwing out acronyms throughout uh, the podcast, when we talk about the Bureau of Industry and Security BIS, where does where does your group sit within those export controls and those uh, issues you just described? Yeah, so the Bureau of Industry and Security is the part of the Commerce Department that is responsible for um, protecting what we call dual-use technology or dual-use items, so capable of ordinary civilian use but also capable of military use. You know, it's interesting. Most of the Commerce Department is um, uh, engaged with trying to encourage and promote the sales of U.S. goods abroad. We're on the protect side, right? So it's like, yeah, sell, 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 but not not those items and not to those people because that's really important to our to our national security. You know, I, I, I often say, and I, I borrowed this line from one of our law enforcement agents, that our mission is to keep our country's most sensitive items out of the world's most dangerous hands. And so BIS uh, has sort of two sides of the house. One side is the sort of policy side that sets the rules of, of what can be exported where and what kind of permissions you need, and then does the licensing to approves or disapproves requests to sell certain items to certain places. I run the other side of the organization, which is the enforcement side. So my team is made up of federal law enforcement agents, people with you know badges and guns who uh, enforce the nation's export laws, and they're supported by a number of intelligence analysts we have at headquarters who help help them do that work. We also have export control officers overseas who do end-use checks. Um, in other words, um, sometimes when a, either a license is being requested or when one has been granted, we want to actually do a check on the person who's receiving the good and to make sure uh, that they are who they purport to be or if it's you know, after the fact that the, the item actually stayed with them and is being used for the purpose represented and our export control officers overseas do that. And then we are on the enforcement side, we bring criminal cases with the Department of Justice, uh, as you know, Brandon. Um, And then we also have administrative authority. We bring administrative cases with our own lawyers at the Commerce Department. And then we also uh, work with the licensing side of of the Bureau of Industry and Security to put parties on our entity list, which is essentially a restricted parties list. Um, U.S. persons can't export to them unless they come in and and ask Mother May I for a license. And those licenses are are often denied. So – Brandon's already mentioned this growing focus, I think you've mentioned, on state actors. And we all know there are two big state actors looming out there that we've seen export controls applied to in pretty novel and innovative ways, and kind of two different sets of novel, innovative ways or for two different purposes. In the case of China, we have export controls being used as a way to control access to some of the most cutting-edge technologies, uh, things around semiconductors, think about artificial intelligence, things along those lines breaking in to that competitive space uh, at the highest end of these emerging technologies. 
And then in Russia, you have a stated goal, an express goal of using export controls, among other measures, to degrade their long-term military capabilities in response to their invasion of Ukraine. Tell us a little bit about how big a shift this is for the national security landscape from the export controls perspective, these new uses that have come up in the last five or six years. Is this really a kind of sea change moment for export controls? And what challenges does it present for the enforcement perspective from your office's perspective? What does it demand new that people might be learning to adapt to in this new environment? Yeah, so I I think it is – there has been an evolution of of export controls. I think traditionally, you know, back in the day, it was more uh, – export controls were more tightly focused on, you know, weapons of mass destruction – Things like that, as opposed to like preventing the military modernization of the the PRC, or um, as you mentioned, to you know, goal being to degrade Russia's ability to wage war on on Ukraine. And I think that's an you know an important evolution. And I think I think you know going back to what we discussed earlier, a little bit of a sort of at the same time a recognition of the power of these tools, and uh, also uh, I think as I said, I think it also ties to the advances in the in the technology. I mean, for us on the enforcement side, you know, I'm not sure it's changed our jobs all that much. I, I think what's changed is because of the the profile and the urgency of the challenge. I think we've sort of redoubled our efforts to work with partners in order to expand our reach and our scope. So I'll give you one one example, which is the disruptive technology strike force that we established with the Department of Justice and also in close partnership with the FBI and uh, with Homeland Security Investigations, right? So that's the idea there is to combine forces um, between the agencies. We set up 14 cells around the country that have an FBI agent, an HSI agent, one of our agents, and an AUSA to, you know, prioritize these cases, to focus on sort of the technology of concern going to countries of concern, and they're supported by an analytic cell here in, here in D.C. And so I, I think, you know, things like that before when our, our mission was um, still critically important, right? We want to make sure that in the back in the back in the day, um, when the fight, you know, when the main sort of threat was terrorism, we wanted to make sure U.S. components weren't ending up in IEDs that were being used against our soldiers on the on the battlefield. But I think now that the the mission has sort of increased and developed in the in the ways we've discussed, I think it, it's put a, a priority on us doing everything we can to figure out how to force multiply because the challenge is so great. We need to make sure that we're doing everything we can across the U.S. government with partners and with international partners, too, to to get at it. I want to spend a moment talking about the task force, which understanding a little bit more about uh, perhaps how it's working in practice and, and from from my experience with the Department of Justice, sometimes interagency coordination and cooperation uh, can leave something to be desired. And I'd be curious in terms of these cells, you know, how has that collaboration been with the Justice Department? It, are you, in fact, sending more cases to the Justice Department and working with them more closely than you were before? I think the strike force has been going really well. I totally agree that from time to time, you know, in interagency partnerships can be challenging. That really hasn't been the case here. It's been, I think, both a rewarding and productive partnership, both between us and the Department of Justice, but also with FBI and, and HSI. Because I think the, you know, the threat landscape I outlined earlier, we're not the only ones who've, who've, who are aware of it, right? All those agencies are aware of it. And I think collectively understand that we need to um, sort of double down on our efforts. I, we we were working well together before. You know, our our agency in particular. We sometimes work a case alone, but much more typically, we're working either with HSI or with FBI or with both. And I think by setting up the strike force, what that has done, it has added a strong demand signal from the agency's headquarters to say this is important. Prioritize this. As I, you know, as I mentioned earlier, my team we only do one thing. We're we're single mission. We enforce the export laws. But the FBI is, you know, they have to do a lot of different things, right? HSI does a lot of different things. AUSAs, even in national security units at U.S. attorney's offices are busy juggling lots of cases. But when the message comes down, hey, prioritize this work. These cases are important. And especially against a backdrop of when maybe, you know, before they they weren't top of the pile, now they are. And so I think 
I'm sort of happy. I'm both happy with how the strike force has gone so far and optimistic about the returns on investment we'll continue to see. I mean, just last week, we had two cases out of uh, Brooklyn, the Eastern District of New York, involving Russian procurement networks. And then on one of those cases this week, we followed up administratively with a temporary denial order. And this was a procurement network with seven individuals, three companies, you know, sending $7 million of electronics to Russia that, you know, is being used uh, against Ukraine. And uh, they were sending it through third countries like Turkey and and the UAE and, and China. And it's, it's, it's like those type of cases that we're want to be prioritizing. And I think having the strike force structure will allow us to continue to bring. You know, it's not just obviously resources at BIS, but in other agencies. And one of the, the resource uh, improvements or increases that, that has been talked about is at the Justice Department. They've uh, significantly, it appears, expanded um, the prosecutors who are going to be focusing on sanctions and export controls. And I'm wondering if that has also tied into sort of the strike force, sort of some of the successes you're talking about in increases in, in focus. Yeah, we're, we're very excited about the increase um, in prosecutors within the National Security Division to do, to do this work. I think that, you know, the strike force is really a distributed model where it's being led out of the U.S. attorney's offices as opposed to led out of Maine Justice. But as you know, as you know, Brandon, that these cases require coordination with Maine Justice and the National Security Division and, and approvals there. So having more attorneys there to help with the work and help make sure um, everything can get approved and move forward, I think will will be helpful. But in terms of the you know day to day doing the cases, I think that's mostly happening out in the districts. But there have been increases in the U.S. attorney offices as well, which which has been helpful. So you've mentioned already the increased emphasis on international cooperation, working with international partners to enhance enforcement capabilities. And that's certainly a nice compliment to the interagency coordination that you guys have just been touching on. I'd love to drill into that a little bit and talk about what that cooperation looks like. I know you recently returned from a trip to Ukraine, along with a couple of other senior U.S. officials. Can you tell us a little bit what the purpose of that trip was, how it fit into this kind of broader enforcement and policy picture, and what it can teach us about this international cooperative effort around export controls. Yeah, sure. Happy to, happy to talk about the the trip to Ukraine, and and maybe to start, I can set the stage by talking about our multilateral efforts when it comes to to Russia. You know, since uh, Russia's full scale invasion of Ukraine, there's really been an unprecedented coordination effort from countries around the globe. I think the current coalition is up to 39 countries that have been put in sort of parallel complementary export controls on Russia. And that's important because uh, when it comes to export controls, if if you're acting unilaterally, uh, one former undersecretary at BIS described it as here, it's like damming half a river, right? When you get the visual, right, that's not very effective because the water just goes around. And the same thing here, right? If we we act unilaterally, the problem, the concern is that, you know, Russia will still be able to get the items and all we've done is, you know, hurt and hamstring U.S. industry. So the 39 countries together has been been really important. And and those complementary controls have really had an impact. You know, U.S. exports to Russia, numbers differ a little week to week, but they're down around 90%. But Russia hasn't just thrown up their hands and said, we give up. They've, uh, not surprisingly, looked for ways to evade the, uh, evade the controls. And they've turned to pariah states like North Korea and Iran to source um, their war effort. But also they have these procurement networks where they're trying to get U.S. components because of the quality of U.S. components um, often routed through third countries. And so that's something we are intently focused on. I mentioned the, you know, the, indi- the indictment uh, in the case of that EDNY last week, out of Brooklyn last week, and the, the temporary denial order we did. There have been a number of indictments that we've brought against these procurement networks. We've also put over, uh, I think, 675 overall parties on our entity list rela- related to Russia's um, war, including over 115 for this, this sort of evasion through the third countries. We've put out an, a lot of alerts and guidance and um, working with companies here in the U.S. to, to, to tell them about the, about the problem. We've also, you know, as you mentioned, we've, we've been doing some international travel. So and that's both with to countries where there's an, a, a diversion problem, right? So I went to Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan in the spring uh, to talk to them about spikes we're seeing in U.S. 
um, components going to their countries from pre-war levels to now and then spikes going from their countries to Russia. You know, it's not – you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out what's happening. Um, same thing when I went to, to China with the, the secretary. You know, we're, we're seeing, you know, items being diverted through the PRC to, to Russia and that's a, that's a concern. But But – in addition, we're going to meet with allies. So I was in Germany a month or so ago talking to European com- companies there about the, you know, the, the problem and the need for their help. And then, yeah, last, last week was in Ukraine. And, uh, there we were meeting with government counterparts to talk about how we can help, continue to help them to make sure that uh, we're reducing the number of U.S. components that are ending up in the missiles and drones that are being used by Russia to attack Ukraine. You know, I was in Kiev, and it was really interesting. I was struck. I mean, I guess, I guess, I, look, I, I, I knew before I went how existential this war is to the Ukrainian people, but there's nothing like sitting at the table with officials responsible for protecting the country and the people of Ukraine and, you know, hearing it in their voice, seeing it on their face, just how important this this war is. And then the other thing I was struck by was being in Kiev, right? It's not the front lines. So it's not, you know, you don't have sort of soldiers and tanks on the streets in Kiev. But what you do have at night is um, missiles and drones being fired at the city, and then the missile defense system, uh, hopefully uh, successfully, shooting them down. It really is, you know, we talk about these advances in technology. Like at least in Kiev, the war really is highly technology dependent between the missiles and the drones on the Russian side, and then the missile defense system on the Ukrainian side. And to the extent that we, uh, through our work, can help you know, reduce Russia's ability to keep producing those missiles and drones that they're using to fire at, you know, buildings and 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 targets in Kiev and elsewhere in Ukraine. I think that's, you know, a really important part of helping the Ukrainians in this war. I'd love to drill down a little bit about, you know, what we're asking for from our partners, what what the big asks are. And I guess our partners and to some extent some of the other countries that maybe partner is not quite the right descriptor, but that we're trying to persuade to uh clamp down on some of these diversions. You know, this this data we're getting about these flows, presumably some of this is coming from partners, some of it's coming from other places. You know, where where are we gathering it? How are we sharing it? And then what are the asks? Is it, you know, to interdict some of the stuff, to clamp down on bad actors, prosecute them, take away licenses, things like that, all of the above. And then what happens with this materiel that's that's out there uh, that in some cases has is out in the wild? Maybe it's not yet to Russia. Maybe it's somewhere else. You know, what is done to control it, to, to bring it back in to the extent it hasn't already gotten into Russian hands or other uh, hands where it's, the goal is to keep it out of there? Yeah. So to the, the first part of the question, it really is all of all of the above. When we're, you know, when I, we're visiting sort of countries that have where we see data indicating diversion, it's both to educate them about the data that we're seeing and to ask for their help. You know, those countries, uh, often the government has a strong role to play when it comes to what companies are um, doing, especially with what companies are being allowed and permitted to export. So, you know, the message is, here's what we're seeing. We'd like your help. But it's also, and if you don't take action, we will, right? We we can put uh, and do put companies on our entity list or other restricted parties list to make it harder for them to get, you know, not only U.S. components, but once you're on one of those lists, right, it sometimes can be hard to get components from from anywhere. And in the allied in the allied countries, we're asking for something I think slightly different because that they're everyone's already aligned on the sort of on the on the purpose. I think. You know, we were talking a little bit earlier about the evolution of export controls and export enforcement. I think that's not only true in this country, but in other countries as well. And I think the, you know, the, the capacity that we have here through our agents and analysts at BIS, but also in combination with FBI and HSI, I, I, I do think that's still unparalleled when you look across 
uh, our allied countries. I think there's there is now sort of understanding and will, but it's going to take some time to you know develop that capacity. And so part of our message and part of our work there is to encourage that to continue to to happen and to offer um, and encourage sort of information sharing between our our, our agencies in order to help facilitate that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And delete me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web, and in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20.
I want to get to the D word that you keep using, diversion. And part of it is, you know, as you said, working with other partners, other countries in terms of identifying what U.S. goods are being used. Um, another part of it uh, that, that you all have focused on are increased reporting, including from financial institutions. And, and, uh, and BIS recently, earlier this month, had a new announcement talking about some of the additional ways that it's leaning on financial institutions to improve their reporting in the space. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the what and the why in terms of that notice and why it's so important. I mean, we've talked about the the magnitude of the threat and the importance of the the mission and so we're we're committed to using all tools at our disposal to get after it and one way to do that is to Im- use the sort of strength and visibility of financial institutions right so um if we're talking about um US items or technology being Sold to people overseas, you know you, those those transactions don't happen without there being a financial component. Someone has to pay for them, which means, you know, by and large, they're being routed through banks. So the banks are seeing these transactions, and when banks see something suspicious as part of their know know your customer or due diligence, they're required. At least U.S. financial institutions are required by by law to file a suspicious activity report with uh, the Treasury Department with um, the Financial Crime. Crimes Enforcement Network or FinCEN. And there's actually like a form that uh, the banks have to fill out where in addition to a narrative, they have to like check a box as to, you know, what exactly is the suspicious activity. And there's a box for public corruption. There's a box for um, securities, uh, you know, for insider trading or, you know, securities violations. There's no box for export violations. And we Talk to FinCEN about that. And, you know, it's the government. So like changing the form will take a while. But, but, but they were creative and partnered with us and said, Hey, what if we, what if we create like a special key term that banks should use if they suspect uh, evasion of your export control, specifically with regards to Russia? That was the first alert we did. And that was, um, over a year ago, we did a joint alert with them. It's the first time they've ever done a joint alert with another agency. We were gratified by that. And then we um, – so we had that specialized key term for Russia. And since then, the, the FinCEN has received over 500 SARS uh, with that key term. And and from my perspective, that's, that's perfect, right? If it were like two, I would have been like, well, that, that wasn't worth much. And by the same token, if it was 100,000, I would be like, uh, maybe we overshot, right? That's hard for us to crunch through. 500 has been great. And, and we've actually, so we review, we've, re- we've had someone, one of our analysts reviewed every single one, nearly a third of them we've actioned in some way, which which is an, an incredible batting average when it comes to, you know, using SARS. So, and when I say actioned, it means either they've helped us um, put together an entity list nomination, or we've cut a new lead out to the field for investigation, or we've um, sent it to one of our agents who's already working on a related matter. And so based on that success, we thought, this is great. We now have this the key term for, for Russia. How about the rest of the world? Because the rest of the world's pretty important too, right? China, Iran, North Korea, elsewhere. And so this week's alert both has sort of red flag indicators for the financial institutions to look out for when it comes to export evasion and gives them a special uh, key term to code in if and when they see a suspected export violation. And then we'll be able to, just like we have with the Russia ones, we'll be able to have an analyst pull these. And and I am optimistic that these will be um, helpful in predicating additional leads out to the strike force cells around the country. Uh, that is that is a remarkable batting average. Um, I, I'm curious if, based on that success and the priority, are, are one of the things that that BIS and, and Commerce does is sort of engage with industry. Are there efforts, and have you been engaging with the financial uh, services sector as well in terms of educating this, in terms of what your expectations are, and sort of the import of it? Yeah, yes, ab- absolutely. Um, we through FinCEN, who has strong relationships with the the banks, we've been talking sort of both in group settings and and some individually to sort of educate financial institutions about the you know the nature of the problem because this is new this is new for them and you know can be uh in some instances right challenging to operationalize for them and we want to make sure that that we're helping them 
you know, identify suspicious uh, transactions and 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 helping them, you know, comply with with the the reporting requirements. So you mentioned earlier that you took a recent trip to China. I think this past summer. Maybe there's another one in there, but that was the one that, Just that one. I looked into. Just one. That's good. Uh, it sounds like you've got enough miles at this point uh, in the last few months. So I, I'm really curious about how your role intersects with our policy towards China, because it strikes me as a really kind of challenging balancing act in a very different way than Russia, which has kind of been the focus of our of our discussion so far. China obviously is kind of the target. It is the endpoint we're trying not to reach with a lot of our export controls around highly sensitive technologies, semiconductors, things like that. But it's also an economic partner and one that the administration has at various points tried to signal that while we may be calibrating our economic relationship, there's not a desire to end it, that there is a desire to maintain it where it makes sense for both of us as countries, and that there's a lot of cases where that's probably the case. In this case, I noticed that in your meeting, you all, a focus of at least that's in most up your alley is the establishment of what the press release described as an export control enforcement information exchange mechanism, which struck me as a very interesting thing to have with a country that is the target of your export controls. Tell us a little bit about this mechanism, the role it plays, and perhaps what it might tell us about the difficult challenges China presents in a kind of unique way. Look, as as you as you mentioned, um, China's a different sort of sort of challenge than than Russia for for sure. We're not decoupling from China. I think the the word is we're de- de-risking, right? I'm sure you've heard this before. And then the other th- ter- expression you may have heard before is um, that the strategy is to have a small yard but a high fence. So in other words, um, our national security is non-negotiable. There are certain items that we are not going to allow U.S. companies to sell to China because we believe that that will hurt our national security. That yard must be protected with a very high fence and that's what we're you know we do through export controls but that also leaves a lot of other items right that are not sort of fund- foundational to our national security that US business and Chinese business can where they can transact and where that's good for American business and good for American workers um, so we have to do we have to do both we have to make sure that we're protecting that small yard with our high fence but also that we're not you know stifling the Sort of sales or business that that doesn't touch on our on our national security. So for for the yes, it's a it's a very catchy name, the Export Control Enforcement uh, Information. It needs an Exchange. acronym, I think. It needs something a little jazzier. Yeah, yeah. But the, the idea there is, look, it's important to have channels of communication. This our export controls. We're going we're going to keep imposing them, and we're going to keep enforcing them. But they're they're going to continue to be a, an irritant or a friction point for the Chinese government. And so it's something that we want to make sure that we have a, a channel of communication to be able to sort of reduce any misunderstandings about why we're doing what we're doing. I think there the Chinese government will say from time to time, um, even more than from time to time, fairly consistently that that they believe that what we're doing is trying to constrain China, that we're, you know, trying to keep them down that we're doing this to sort of for economic reasons and and we've been really clear on that trip and 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 elsewhere um, that that's that's not the case this isn't about economics it's about it's about national security we we want American business to be able to do business with with Chinese companies as long as they don't impact our national security and then when 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 we have concerns that it does impact our national security that's non-negotiable for us. Can you give us an example of the types of communication and coordination that is expected to come out of this mechanism? Like where is the non-zero-sum coordination uh, advantage for both parties out of these sorts of communications? Sure. So I'll give you, I'll give you one concrete example. With the, uh, I mentioned earlier that we have export control officers around the world who do these end-use checks. We had been having trouble getting the Chinese government to schedule – our end use checks in China. In China, the processes we have to work through the Ministry of Commerce there to get the checks scheduled. I think we hadn't been able to do a check, and part of this was during COVID. So, but I, I think it was like close to, or maybe even over two years, we hadn't been able to do a check. So, um, partly because of that, we we changed our 
policy and we implemented a new policy that said for any it's not china specific it's country agnostic but if a if a host country doesn't schedule a requested check within 60 days um, we will begin the interagency process to put the company where we're trying to do the check on our unverified list which is another type of sort of restricted party list because we haven't been able to do the check we can't verify that they are who they say they are and that they're using items for the purpose that they they say and that if then another 60 days go by, um, we'll move them from the unverified list to the entity list. That policy change got the Chinese government's attention and sprung the end use checks loose. And since then, we've completed over 130. That is non-zero sum, right? That is in our interest because we want to get those checks done. It's also in their interest because <laughs> unless we do the checks and unless the checks sort of come back um, clear, uh, their companies aren't going to be able to easily – aren't easily going to be able to get U.S. items. So I think that's one example and that's – you know, that is one example of, of a topic that we, you know, have discussed and I'm sure we'll continue to discuss through this information exchange is how we can, you know, continue to make sure that those end use checks are going smoothly because that is, you know, an area where I think it's in both both governments' interests. Uh, what a pivot to an, another aspect of – I'll call it your sort of the enforcement strategy. Some is BIS enforcement officers going out. Some is Some of it is – people coming in, so voluntary disclosures. And really across uh, the government, there has been a focus on finding ways to increase those voluntary disclosures. And and you all are are certainly um, have done so as well and, and announced a new policy, really both increasing incentives, but also uh, raising penalties and consequences for failure to disclose. And want to Talk a little bit and give you the opportunity to talk a little bit about, in fact, what what makes that policy that you adopted unique, in particular, some of the, I think, incentive structures, but also talk about a, enough time has passed just to ask whether, in fact, you have seen in, a response and increase of those disclosures. Sure. So, look, we want to know when our rules have been broken. That's important for us to uh, – because when our rules are broken, it's it's not just – Hey, you broke our rules, and there needs to be a consequence. It's it's that, but also when 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 our rules are broken, like there's a harm to our national security. So we need to know, want to know when that happened. And so so part of what we've done is we've clarified our policies to help hopefully further incentivize self disclosure. It's always been the case, and I think people have long understood that if you walk yourself in and tell us, you know, what happened, that there are concrete benefits uh, in the form of a, you know, a sharply reduced penalty. If the thing you're telling us about merits a penalty, I I, I should say we get, I think, the, I'm going to, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think last year we had maybe close to 500 or around 500 self-disclosures, which is a, a lot, right? More than one a day. The overwhelming majority of those um, result in a, what we call a warning letter or a no action letter, right? There are people telling us about some, you know, minor, more minor technical violation. And those were, we like hearing about those, but also we, you know, um, that's not where our focus is. Um, but so for the more serious ones, if you come and tell us about it, yeah, you get concrete benefits, um, sharply reduced penalty. What we did, the, the, the new part is that if you, if a company, you know, knows they have a, and this is just for the potentially significant violations, but if they, they, you know, they, they know they have one and they, choose not to come in and tell us about it, and then later we find out about it, we're going to consider that an aggravating factor. We're going to hold it against you, basically, that you chose not to walk yourself in to tell us. And the thinking behind that is to, you know, sharpen the risk calculus for folks a little bit because, you know, uh, Brandon, you may want to no comment, but, uh, you know, when I was out, I, I mentioned that I was out, you know, doing uh, investigations in white collar defense. And, and my experience was that in the defense bar that often when it comes to that decision point, it's a, you know, it's a cost benefit calculation, right? It's like if, if we, if we don't tell the government, you know, what's our risk? Uh, and if we do tell the government, what's our benefit? So we've been clear on the benefit side for a while. We wanted to add a little bit to the, to the risk side. And we partnered that with another policy clarification, which is 
about disclosures concerning others, right? So the the last thing I want is for a company to feel like they're a sucker or a chump for playing by the rules. And and so that can happen when if, you know, a company's playing by the rules but their competitor isn't and they feel like, "Wait, why am I <laughs> not booking these sales when my competitor keeps making money? That's not fair." And and well, you know, it's a disincentive to companies to play by the rules. So we don't want anyone to to do that, but we can't take action if we don't know that's going on. We don't want people to suffer in silence, but we want them to come tell us. And so to um incentivize that, what we've said is if you come tell us and that what you've told us results in an enforcement action, we'll remember and you'll get some credit in the bank with us. And if down the road, even if it's on something completely unrelated, you get in trouble with us. It's, there's no, it's not a get out of jail free card or anything, but it will be a mitigating factor that we'll consider. And I actually think those two policy clarifications work in tandem with one another. In other words, if part of that calculus about whether to walk yourself in is always, well, how likely it is that the government's going to hear about it if we don't tell them ourselves, because if they're not going to hear about it, and maybe we don't need to tell them. But if they're going to hear about it, we want to make sure they hear about it from us first. The fact that we're incentivizing others to tell us when they notice something going wrong in their industry, and others might have violated our rules. I think hopefully those two things in, in tandem will incentivize people to come tell us when there are those potentially significant violations. And, you know, first of all, I will always accept unsolicited legal advice from you. Just consider it solicited. Oh, I hope I didn't, no hope no, I didn't no. do that. No comment. It's fine. <laughs> Anytime. Just just uh, jump in. But I want to just uh, follow up on, on sort of that second piece in terms of the benefit, uh, which I think is interesting because when, when we talk about traditionally a a, a voluntary disclosure policy it is typically a company who has identified their own violation and is part of that process. And part of the incentive structure that um, has been created here is for companies not necessarily identifying their own violations, but violations of others. Uh, and it, it sort of plays in on the back end, which is if, if at some point down the road they identify a violation. And, and I guess that does seem to be a unique nature of it. And I'm curious if, in fact, you are seeing that, if, in fact, companies have come in outside of their own violations or in tandem with it and are increasing their disclosures on, on competitors or simply identifying more violations than traditionally. Yes. Um, yeah. So, um, yes, we have had people come in to um, tell us about not just their own conduct, but the, the conduct of others. And that's that's I don't want to get into numbers, but that that's something that we are gratified by. And that, look, those are important things for us to vet closely, because obviously there can be, you know, if it's a competitor, there can be right incentives other than uh, we're playing by the rules. They're not right. It could be attempting to gain competitive advantage. We don't we don't take anyone's word for it, but it's important that we get those tips and then, then we can fully investigate them. And if they turn into actual cases, as I said, the, the, you know, the company that, that gave us the tip gets credit in the bank with us. So we're almost out of time with you today. We kind of want to close with one big picture sort of question. The Deputy Attorney General recently said a statement that sanctions, and by which I think it's fair to say uh, she probably means sanctions and export controls, is the new FCPA in terms of the role it's coming to play in our whole kind of national legal architecture and national security policy and related aspects of private sector and industry. How is that manifested for you? What do you what do you take her to be meaning when she says that? And how has that informed the mission of your office and the trajectory that these sorts of policies are headed in under this administration? Yeah. So so um, when I was at the Department of Justice, particularly in um, my my last couple of roles there, I, I got to actually speak for the Deputy Attorney General. I don't get to do that anymore, but I will I will tell you what I what I think she means by that. Which is, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you one story from my time in private practice to get at the point. When I was in private practice, wherever I traveled in the world to talk to clients, the thing they always wanted to talk to me about was FCPA enforcement, right? Foreign Corrupt Practices Act enforcement. No matter where I was, what country, what industry, what they were concerned about was the Department of Justice's FCPA enforcement and, and what they needed to do so as not to run afoul of it. And I would say to clients or prospective clients when they asked me about FCPA enforcement, I said, do you, do you know how many FCPA prosecutors there are at the Department of Justice? And I said, no. And at the time, it's more now, but I said 20. 
And, and that's an incredible, incredible return on investment for the Department of Justice. So you have 20 prosecutors, yet all the way around the world, companies are making sure that their compliance programs are built so that they don't run afoul of the Department of Justice's FCPA prosecutors. And I think what the Deputy Attorney General is getting at is she wants companies to think about their national security risk, their sanctions and export risk, the same way they think about their FCPA risk. Because look, I, I'll go I'll go on record. I will tell all your listeners, I am 100% against paying bribes overseas. Like that's bad. But when our rules get violated, right, there's direct harm to our national security. So that should be treated at least as seriously. And so I, I think that that DOJ's hiring of the new prosecutors, as, as Brandon mentioned, our creation of the strike force, the sort of the overall emphasis and demand signal and importance of this enforcement area, I think is both designed to hold people accountable on the back end, but even more importantly, convince people that they need to invest in compliance on the front end. And, and look, we're the Department of Commerce. I always say to companies, we'd much rather help you comply on the front end than enforce on the back end, even though like we do enforcement, that's what we do. But that's because – the reason is because if we're enforcing on the back end, the national security harm has often already happened. Um, you know, I'll give you one example of the sort of the, the – I think the fruit maybe that the this sort of enhanced focus is is bringing, which is our, our resolution against Seagate. So it's a, it was a $300 million administrative resolution to resolve allegations that Seagate was selling hard disk drives to Huawei um, in violation of our – Foreign direct product rule, and I don't want to get into the sort of technical details of what of what of what how the foreign direct product rule works. But suffice it to say that that's the largest standalone administrative penalty in our history, and I, I think it's reflective of the fact that we are uh, going to continue to bring all our resources to bear, both criminal cases with the Department of Justice, administrative cases with our commerce lawyers and, and entity listings when we see companies that we believe are you know, violating our rules in ways that are contrary to our national security. Well, that is all the time we have here today, but we're happy you joined us. Matt Axelrod, thank you for joining us here today on the Lawfare Podcast. Well, thanks so much for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And check out Lawfare's other podcasts, including Rational Security, a casual, lighthearted chat about national security news that I co-host each week with my colleagues Quinta Jurassic and Alan Rosenstein. In addition, be sure to visit lawfaremedia.org for extensive written coverage of national security law and policy issues, and consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare to gain access to an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare podcasts, among other perks. For more information, visit lawfaremedia.org support. This podcast was edited by Jen Pachahal and produced by Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project... There's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.